Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Charlotte Greenfield, a Reuters correspondent who reports on her native New Zealand. Charlotte and I started our time at Reuters together in the Asia Graduate Trainee Scheme. We both did two weeks of training together in Singapore and haven't ever crossed paths in person since then, although we've kept in touch a bit. While you might hear New Zealand and think of Rolling Green, Lord of the Rings-style utopia, she's reported on some big and often horrific stories. Our conversation takes us from Indonesian plane crashes to the terrorist attack on the mosque in Christchurch, and yes, after last episode's discussion of the Taliban, somehow we end up back talking about them again. Indeed, if I had to say what the recurring theme of this episode is, it's journalists growing accustomed to reporting on horrible things. Is it good that we take traumatic events and strive to get the news out? Is it callous? We don't even attempt to answer that question. I didn't realize how much we were circling that issue till I listened back to the episode. It's not just journalists either. How many plane crashes have happened that killed hundreds of people in the past decade? How many do you really remember? Just something to chew on. Before we get to that, I realize I ask more or less the same questions every episode. That's part of the design, but I'm also working out over time which questions work and which don't, adjusting slightly every time. Do you have a question you'd like me to ask? Get in touch on Twitter, where the show's handle is at ForeignPod, or on Facebook, where it's Facebook.com slash ForeignPod, with any question ideas you might have. Okay, that's it. Here again is my interview with Charlotte Greenfield, a Reuters correspondent in New Zealand. Um, if you could set the scene a little bit, you know, where are you right now? What time it is? What kind of work week have you had this past week? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am speaking to you from Wellington, New Zealand, and we are in the middle of winter. So it is quite cold and there is meant to be a big storm coming, but so far it's uh, very calm. And yeah, so it's 11 a.m. in the morning and we've had a bit of a crazy week. Nothing too sort of sexy or exciting, but our central bank decided to cut rates by a lot more than expected. And it was all very dramatic and markets mm. went crazy. So that kept us very busy because it's a pretty big news story globally. The New Zealand Central Bank is quite closely watched. And as some people might know, Reuters does a lot of political and general news, but we also do a lot of business and economic and markets reporting. So this was one of the biggest stories on that front. So yeah, that kept us pretty busy running around after central bankers this week. Cool. So I've never been to New Zealand. Does it get quite cold, like below freezing there? No, it's really not cold compared to most places. <laughs> like usually it's like five or six degrees Celsius. That's like really cold. But it's more we just are not equipped to deal with cold. We don't heat our housing. Everything's really badly insulated. All of our housing is like below World Health Organization standards. And there's a lot uh, of like rain and wind and damp. So you just feel like a little bit cold all of the time. But it's really nothing on most places, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, on the central bank stuff, I think it was this past week, maybe the week before, because uh, the central bank here cut rates for, uh, for the first time in a while. So a guy actually had to come in from his vacation <laughs> to cover <laughs> it just for one day. But uh, I know how that can go. Okay, cool. And then then we usually start like way back to uh, where were you born? Where are you from? What was it like growing up there? Yeah, sure. I was actually 
born here in Wellington, probably like 10 minutes away from where I'm sitting oh, wow. now, which is, has kind of been one of the greatest ironies of my adult life because I really thought I was going to get out and do all these adventurous things. And I, I think for the most part <laughs> I have, but I still have sort of ended up right here for now or for the last few years. But yes, yeah, so I grew up here in Wellington. It is the capital city of New Zealand. Actually, it's not as big as like the main city, which is Auckland. So there's probably about going out really broadly 400,000 people. So it feels like a pretty small place. And I think New Zealand and even more so when I was growing up, feels really quite isolated from the rest of the world, which is so sure. far away. Even to get to Australia, the nearest point is three hours by plane and flights are expensive and that sort of thing. So I think growing up in New Zealand, you have quite a particular perspective on the world, which is always one of sort of looking out at the world. So I was raised mostly by my mom, who now is a counsellor. But when I was growing up, she did like a little bit of everything from selling makeup to working at the city council. And from when I was probably seven or eight by my stepdad, who is a political journalist in New Zealand. Yeah. And so I think that had a massive impact on me and on what I do now because my stepdad, by the kind of stage that I turned up, he had just worked everywhere forever. And then he'd gone and started his own business doing freelancing. And so he's had his office. It's kind of in our house. It's sort of beneath the house, but you have to walk past it to get into the house. And so it's like a mini newsroom. So I would sort of sneak down there whenever I needed to print something to get it for off his printer and he would sort of be sitting in his chair leaning back like feet up on the table which I now feel is the kind of classic journalist pose I'll adopt it if no one else is around kind of talking on the phone like sort of off the record to sources and you sort of get these embargoed press releases coming off his printer so I felt like I knew news before everyone else and you know his, his office is just kind of stacked up with like papers everywhere of you know tips and leads and ideas and he'd get random phone calls like quite late in the evening by someone who needed to talk to him. So I feel as though from really, really young, I had this journalistic environment around me and I was really tuned into it and sort of curious about it. That's that's usually why I ask about people's parents because usually they, I mean, not usually, sometimes that's where the journalistic interest starts. Um, So was he like a columnist? Was he a columnist or was he like a straight reporter going out getting scoops, that sort of thing? Back in the day, he was a pretty straight reporter. But by the time I was living with him, he was more like he's sort of a political commentator. He's kind of gone into this almost semi-academic space. He sort of writes books and, you know, is on think tank board and that sort of thing. But he did keep up his column for a really long time. I think he dropped it two years ago. And then he'll sort of do the odd article. Sometimes he writes a little bit for overseas outlets as well. Like I think he's done some stuff for The Economist and The Economist Intelligence Unit and BBC. Yeah, so he's he's really done a bit of everything. He's kind of considered almost like a part of the Fed I think in this sort of New Zealand political reporting world, which because we're a country of only four or five million people is not it's not that big. So he's kind of quite well known in in this sort of bubble, I think. What's his name, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, his name is Colin James. Okay, cool. 
And then do you have any brothers and sisters by any chance? Yeah, I do. I have a very sort of big, confusing family. I'm my actual biological parents only child, but I have two younger half siblings, but I grew up with them a lot. So we just sort of consider ourselves siblings. And I have an older stepsister. And do are any of them uh, journalists or what do they do? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. One is, yeah, like a technical writer at, at Weta, which is um, like Peter Jackson's kind of software um, special effect. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I know it. I know it. When I was a teenager, I was very into Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the right <laughs> country to be in for that. And my little brother is an engineer. He works in like sort of healthcare engineering. And my little sister is like part-time a dental assistant and part-time trains horses and runs like riding lessons and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a real mix, but I'm definitely the only journalist. Cool. And uh, what what does your uh, stepdad think of you being a journalist out of curiosity? I don't know. He doesn't really say. We're very like New Zealand repressed about our emotions. So <laughs> it's not like I get, you know, long sort of talks about how proud he is of me or anything like that. But he, he is sort of the main person I talk to constantly for advice about my career, even though it's so different from when he was sort of a young journalist. But, you know, he takes a real interest. Like we kind of have sort of a dinner every month or two. And, you know, mostly what we talk about is sort of journalism. But he was very against it when I was like younger, like when I was first uh-huh. thinking of becoming a journalist. But I think I've sort of slowly won him over. <laughs> but no, he doesn't really say what he thinks, but he always gives advice and is very supportive. I assume, you know, you took an interest in his work and kind of what was going on in his office and things like that. But when did you start doing journalism yourself? And did you do it at all in high school or? I didn't really do it in high school. We didn't really have, or maybe I just didn't look for the opportunities, but we didn't really have like a school paper or anything like that. I think that kind of stuff is not so common like in New Zealand. I think it's way bigger in the US. I feel like there's like 13 year olds going out and getting scoops, but I I've not really seen that kind of culture in New Zealand. I was a bit, I was pretty disengaged at high school as well. I tried to avoid going as much as I could. And I did a lot <laughs> of, um, yeah, kind of, uh, I was in this thing called the Young Actors Studio, which was this sort of drama group thing at this performing arts center. Huh. So that was where I spent my free time. So I didn't really do much journalistically there. But then at university, I think, we had a student magazine. It's like a weekly magazine called Critic. And I feel like this is a very Flight of the Concords sort of uh, <laughs> joke, but it is technically the second biggest weekly newspaper in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> So it sort of was written, you know, by students for students and took a very tongue in cheek, kind of pushing the envelope, a lot of explicit content and swearing sort of tone, but really tried to match that with really good reporting and commentary and reviews and stuff. So I got involved with that, I think, almost from the beginning. I think I did a little bit in my first year and then volunteered a bit more in my second year. And then I think it was by my third or fourth year, I was like a feature writer and I was actually paid. I mean, not a lot, but um, that was my first like paid job in journalism. And then I um, ran the sort of news section, which was like an eight page weekly news section for, for a year as well. So 
Yeah, that's kind of where I got my start in, in journalism. Where, where did you go to university? So I went to university at the University of Otago. It is, I feel this is becoming a bit of a theme. It's the world's southernmost university. <laughs> it's at the very bottom of New Zealand. It's in a city called Dunedin, which has a really interesting vibe. You really do feel as though you're in the middle of nowhere, but it's stunningly beautiful. And it's really a student town, like about a fifth of the population, which is about 100,000 people, are students. And it's like got a pretty good reputation, especially for sciences and things. So it does bring people from all the all around the world, particularly sort of academics and postgrads and that sort of thing. So even though you're in this kind of really ends of the earth city, it does have quite a kind of cosmopolitan global vibe in some ways at the same time. So yeah, so that's where I went to university. And I ended up living on and off there for ages because I did like a joint degree of law and English literature. And I also went overseas for a little bit, which kind of slowed me down a bit. I had to go back to finish my degree. So I lived there for about probably, I think, kind of six years on and off. Just since I know nothing about New Zealand education system, is it along the lines of the British education system where you have to decide in advance what you have to study and like, you know, you're basically married to that or do you, is it more loose like the American system or how does that work? Um, I think it's probably somewhere in between. You do sort of sign up for a degree and a major going in, but you can change your major fairly easily. Like they're, they're pretty flexible. So I would say it's somewhere in between. I think it's a bit more like the UK in the sense that there's not so much like a liberal arts degree. You do sort of have to pick a major or two. And also our um, law degrees and our engineering degrees and our med school is all at undergrad level. So if you want to do those, you are sort of deciding fairly young. It's not like you do a degree and then go back and do those. Although that that is an option as well, but most people would do it as their first degree or, or a combined degree, which is what I did. And then uh, you said you went abroad. Was it like, uh, is that like a junior year abroad type of thing or how does that work? Yeah, I sort of took a year semi off for half of it. I was traveling and then for the other half, I was studying on like an exchange semester semester in France, in Lyon. So I was studying law and a bit of like French there. Most of my classes were in English though, because my French is not that great. Actually, it would have been my fourth year, I think. It takes about six years to do a combined arts and law degree in New Zealand, which is what I was doing. So this was about just over midway through. Okay. At this point, were you thinking, hedging your bets, maybe I can be a lawyer, maybe I can be a journalist, or, or what were you thinking at that point? I think I was definitely had the idea of being a journalist by then. I actually signed up for law school knowing I didn't want to be a lawyer. So <laughs> law school is more an, a weird experiment of sitting there trying to kind of master this technical subject to figure out what was the exact opposite that I was going to do. <laughs> so I always knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I actually decided to sign up for law school literally when I had a fever. I woke up at like 6 a.m. having had a fever all night and was like, this is what I have to do. I have to sign up for law school. I had just been signed up for an arts <laughs> degree and it was a whole administrative drama to, to change it while I was still really sick. So, you know, I'm not sure how <laughs> of sound mind I was when I made that decision. But <laughs> yes, yeah, so I always knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I think for that 
that first year of law school, I was not quite sure what else I wanted to be. And then it was like this slow realization. There was no one thing. It was just a really natural realization. And then some people who are really important to me and I think know me really well, as soon as I sort of started talking about maybe what I was going to do next, they all sort of said, oh, you're going to be a journalist as though it were just a given thing. And I think looking back, it just kind of seemed like the obvious path rather than any kind of one moment. Yeah, I'm sure, especially once you got deeper and deeper into this weekly magazine. So you you graduate after six years or so, and then, then what happens? The great thing about going to law school is they were really good at helping you think beyond what you could do at, at undergrad at a New Zealand university. Because at that point, thinking about overseas study. It felt like obviously I'd done an exchange, but that's a little different, I feel. But actually going off and studying somewhere else and doing a whole degree felt pretty foreign and out of reach. It's something that happens to people in movies. But the Mm -hmm. law school was really good at churning out people who went off and did a lot of other study, you know, produces lots of like Rhodes Scholars and that kind of thing. And they knew I didn't want to study law, but totally to their credit, and especially the dean of law who I was a research assistant for so got to know quite well they were really supportive of that even though they knew I didn't want to do anything to do with law so they just really encouraged me to kind of look at options and guided me a little bit through the process and I had just I remember for some reason when I was like 17 or 18 like so years earlier I'd like stumbled across this Columbia journalism website and I sort of thought it just seemed like this amazing place like it looked like Hogwarts or something to me <laughs> but again like this totally out of the reach pie in the sky idea and then I'd completely forgotten about it and so then a few years later when I'm sort of suddenly starting to think oh maybe trying to do something something overseas or a master's as an option, it kind of came back to me. So I started looking into it and that I just, I just knew instinctively that was where I wanted to go. So the only question was how I was going to manage the application process and whether I was going to get in and how I was going to fund it. But I knew that that was sort of my dream. Yeah. So I just kind of went from there. And so I was doing that towards the end of finishing university. And it was really from then until actually arriving in New York and going to Columbia, there was about a year. So that was all going through all the application processes and then knowing I was accepted and then getting visas and that sort of thing. And so during that time, I was also in Indonesia for a while doing an internship at a newspaper. And I also did a little bit of work as sort of a research project for a think tank back in New Zealand. Cool. I know that you said people encouraged you to kind of look abroad, but I mean, I imagine, like you said, New Zealand can feel kind of remote. I mean, as a teenager and a college student, were you kind of like looking forward to the moment when you could get out or um, was it only after being encouraged that you thought to do that? Oh, yeah, completely. Like always on my sort of plan life chat track was get out of New Zealand as soon as possible. (laughs) Yeah, even when I was a really little kid, I think the first time I went overseas, I was maybe eight. And I think I went to Singapore. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, this is the world. There's this whole world out here. I thought this existed, but I wasn't quite sure. (laughs) Um, So I think I never quite lost that feeling of like, oh, there's this whole world out there that I want to explore. And to be fair, the studying overseas had felt like a really big thing, but I had traveled quite a bit and lived overseas quite a bit. And I'd been spending quite a bit of time in Kenya where I sort of co-run this little NGO. So I sort of already did have quite a big life outside of New Zealand, but just the idea that I would actually get 
to then study and, and build my career overseas felt really exciting and new. And I definitely needed some people to give me a sense that that was possible. So you were doing this Kenya NGO way back in college already? Yeah, I was. I mean, it sounds very lofty now. I mean, at the time it was very just kind of cobbling it together. So when I was doing that year of travel overseas, the second half of which was in exchange in France, a lot of the first half I was in Nairobi in Kenya. Like it's almost kind of cringeworthy now. It was very this, you know, (laughs) white (laughs) 20-year-old turning up as a volunteer and helping out in this government-run children's home, which is like an orphanage. And so I think me and some of the other people working there and around it just felt a bit disillusioned about how much you were really doing, walking in and walking out again. And so we just tried to think of a way that we could do something a little bit more long term. So a few of us, me, an American, a Canadian and our Kenyan friends kind of sort of hatched this plan to organize for some of the kids who were sort of in the right position and right age to go to school and that we would fund that. And it basically grew from there. So now we have more kids and we also have a teacher that we put in the children's home and we do a few other sort of projects. So it's all kind of revolving around education in the sort of the state children's home systems in Kenya. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, you completely subverted the stereotype that you're still keeping it up after all this time. Um, That's very cool. (laughs) Yeah, I was just back there last month and we have quite a few kids involved in this NGO but two of them are are kind of my kids. Like I'm sort of on paper their sponsor, although I get a lot of support from fundraising and my parents and stuff. But yeah, they were like three or four when I was first there and I was sort of looking after them every day. And now they're about 12 and a half and 13. So it's kind of amazing to have watched that trajectory and watched them grow. Very cool. Very cool. And then, yeah, where to start? I guess uh, since you did the Indonesia internship first, how did that come about and where were you? So again, it sort of came about through some of my law stuff. This is going to show how much of a geek I am, but I was doing this mooting competition. (laughs) Mooting is like, debating for lawyers um, uh, so you sort of pretend to like you know you go through a whole arguing a case and this was specialized in international trade law and it was this international competition but the Asia Pacific round that year happened to be in Indonesia and so while I was there some of the organizers thought we must all be really into international trade law and so we're sort of offering to try and set us up with some internship kind of in that area and I had to say oh sorry no I actually want to be a journalist not an international trade lawyer and then they sort of said oh well the university where the competition's being held is owned by this family in it's a family-owned big business conglomerate in Indonesia. And as well as this university, they also own a newspaper, which was the Jakarta Globe. And so they sort of arranged for that to happen. And then New Zealand, it's called the Asia New Zealand Foundation, which is this sort of think tank. It has some government funding, but it's meant to be independent of the government, meant to increase links between New Zealand and Asia. So they have grants and stuff and internships they do for journalists. And so I turned up and said to them, well, I've actually got this internship sorted out, but would you help give me some funding? And so they did. I was able to do it for a while. Like I was there for four and a half months, I think, working in this newsroom in, in Jakarta. And what, what sort of stuff were you doing? I did a real mix. I think my first service story was kind of a junket with UNICEF where I went to this 
beautiful, beautiful part of Indonesia, the Flores Islands, which are fairly remote and was with a team that was looking at child malnutrition, which was a really big issue there. So I think probably like turning up in my first week and like going off to these picturesque islands, was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably got me excited. But I did quite a lot of business news, actually. The managing editor at the time who was tasked with looking after me and trying to make sure I didn't breach any journalistic ethics or anything was a former Bloomberg reporter. He'd worked at Bloomberg, I think, for about 10 years. So he had quite a business-focused mind. So he probably assigned a lot of those stories to me. So I remember doing one about why the iPhone 5, the release, was delayed in Indonesia, which actually became a really big story. Everyone wanted to read that. And I sort of, you know, spoke to this police officer who'd been convincing his friend to bring him an iPhone 5 over from Singapore. And, you know, a lot of people in the comment section were sort of raising, how does this police officer earning enough money to buy these iPhone 5s and then, you know, sneakily get them in? It's just, I sort of love that about Indonesia. You, you can cover quite a business or dry subject and you still end up with these crazy characters and something weird happens. That was a lot of the kind of stuff I was getting up to in the four or five months I was there. Yeah, that's very cool. I imagine. So uh, now to move on to Colombia. Colombia, first of all, I totally get the Harry Potter thing. Like Colombia <laughs> is where I really, really, really wanted to go to university, and I did not get in. And I was, uh, I was upset about it. But I obviously turned out fine. But I totally get that. I mean, you must have been one of the few people showing up with this extremely worldly experience. Uh, I mean, I know some people who went straight into Columbia, maybe after university, I think. Yeah, they definitely weren't on the level of having uh, Indonesian journalism internship under their belt. So what, what was it like once you got there? You know, it was such a mix. I think actually Columbia, at least when I was there, it has a really high international student. Like, I think it's like 40 or 50 percent at the journalism school. I had people from the Middle East having just covered, you know, protests during the Arab Spring and that sort of thing. So I remember feeling very intimidated. And then even a lot of the American students, maybe they didn't necessarily have so much experience in journalism, but to me, they had this really interesting, sophisticated view of the world. To be honest, it's kind of embarrassing to look back on now, but I didn't really, really know what the New Yorker was. I mean, I, I knew what it was, but <laughs> I didn't read enough of it that I sort of knew that style of journalism. Journalism is quite different or traditionally has been in New Zealand, less kind of narrative, long form sort of stuff. Yeah. So I felt very like a country bumpkin, very unsophisticated turning up. But it was an amazing environment to be in. I mean, really life-changing to be around that many people from so many interesting backgrounds. So I was in sort of the center within the general journalism degree called the Stabil Center for Investigative Journalism. And there are about 15 of us. And that group, we became really, really close. And it was a really, really intense, interesting group of people from all around the world. And we were sort of under the thumb of this amazing journalist called Sheila Coronel, who's, she's from the Philippines and she's brought down several presidents there or contributed to to their downfall in her time. And she was the head of the Studio Centre. And I think now she's also the Dean of Academic Affairs there, but she was just the head of our investigative centre at the time. So yeah, it was an incredibly intense environment. I mean, it was really really exhausting. We got no sleep. It was very stressful. There were people who ended up in hospital with panic attacks and that <laughs> sort of thing. And 
I think I came pretty close to it at some point. But yeah, it was really amazing. I feel like even though it was only a year in my mind, it feels like it was like five or six years of my life in terms of how much I sort of learned and the experience I had. And I think it's still something I just draw on constantly and how I sort of think about journalism and the process and how to go about it. Uh, so what what sort of stuff did is was it a thing where you had one big project you were investigating all year and or how did it work? They actually crammed an unbelievable amount into that year. So we had all sorts of different sections and courses. And we also had this multimedia boot camp where we did a lot of photo and audio work and all of that kind of stuff. But then on top of all of that, if you're in the investigative center, you spent that whole time doing extra investigative focus classes. And then you had to produce this. Everyone actually has to do, it's called like a master's project. So it's like a bigger piece of long form journalism that you're working on throughout the year. But if you're in the investigative center, there's quite specific criteria of what that has to be. So it has to be very much an investigative project. So for that, I spent pretty much all of that time for for that project looking at pretty risky surgeries that are medically unnecessary that are carried out on kids who are born with intersex conditions, which sounds really niche, but actually intersex condition, which is sort of where a child is born. And there's quite a few different conditions that come under this umbrella, but they're not completely physically female or male, or their chromosomes don't match up with how they might appear. And it actually affects, I think it's a very similar proportion of the population as there are redheads. So it's not sort of Mm -hmm. as rare as you might think. And there's a few different types of surgeries that they tend to carry out on these kids, which is very much about making them sort of look normal. They're often carried out on quite young babies. And there's a whole lot of really, really nasty side effects that can come with these. And there's also a risk of sort of assigning the wrong gender or gender they don't end up identifying with. So I was looking at the surgeries, like how prevalent they were, risks were, Um, And also what parents were being told, there was quite a lot of evidence I was getting that parents weren't really giving informed consent. They were sort of being told things like, oh, we have to do this or your child will get cancer. When really, if they didn't do that, it was sort of similar to the chance of like a woman developing breast cancer. Like if you had this sort of certain tissue in there, it's possible that you could develop cancer, but it's not like a sort of imminent risk. So that was what that project was looking at. And you pulled it off. Did it get published anywhere or does... Yeah. Yeah. It got published by The Atlantic. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it went out there just after I graduated, it was published. Cool. It's a very interesting topic. I That, you know, rings a bell. I remember once I was passing through Chicago and I, I was hanging out with a friend and he's like, oh, we're going to go over to my friend's house and watch Game of Thrones. And we go over then the guy's like, oh, I'm a pediatric urologist. Yeah, like, those, are, oh. those are the, the people who are involved in the care of these kids. So I spoke to a lot of pediatric urologists for this story. Yeah. And this guy, I mean, I'm, he probably shouldn't have done this, but he's like, oh, I'm like, what kind of sort of stuff do you want to do? you do? And he's like, oh, take a look at this. This is what I'm doing tomorrow morning. And it was like a description of a very grisly surgery sounding surgery on a, a young boy's like genitals. And I, oof, I don't know if yeah, you should be showing this. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I spent eight or nine months reading because I'd read all these medical journal articles. And it was pretty intense, but I think I got slightly immune to it after a while. And then I do remember someone was actually asking about this article. I ended up getting really into it and describing like what had happened to one of these kids and this guy fainted. (laughs) (laughs) Then I 
oh, maybe I've gotten a little too inured to this stuff. Still, though, it's, uh, I mean, an interesting story and sounds like an important one. Let's see. So then you get out of Columbia and I remember there was some sort of like your professor or somebody encouraged you to apply for the Reuters trainee scheme. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Columbia has quite a vigorous sort of careers department. I think they know how tough it is to get jobs in journalism. And that's one of the ways they really sell the school is that although it is about going and getting all these skills and knowledge that also it is about them helping you find a career path. And so we're all sort of encouraged to apply for all sorts of things. But for me, it was just a little tricky coming from New Zealand because I didn't really want to come back to New Zealand. But the scholarship I was on meant I wasn't really allowed to work in the US until I'd lived in New Zealand for two years. So the US was kind of out. And then much to my chagrin and regret, like I don't really speak any other languages. I speak really bad French and really basic Indonesian and like Kiswahili phrases that have been taught to me by children. So I just wasn't an obvious candidate for anywhere, especially when journalism is so competitive. So I was a bit worried. I just felt like every application, I wasn't going to be a good fit. So I applied for the Reuters trainee program, which I don't no, it sort of exists in this form anymore, but at the time it was kind of a nine-month program, and I think they had about four people in the four different regions of Reuters, so the Americas, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and Asia Pacific. So, yeah, my professor just said, you, you should apply, so I did. It was a really long application process, so I didn't know for ages, and then they sort of called me one day and said, oh, yeah, you're, you're on this, and also we want you to be based in Indonesia. Is that okay? So I said, sure. So I did luckily have that sort of lined up before I finished my degree, which really did give me a lot of peace of mind. Yeah, I do. I remember that process taking so long. I, I remember I was in my Chinese like immersion program at the time. I'd taken a year off to to study and, and getting that phone call and it seeming yeah so nonchalant like oh you're you're in oh great and uh, but I remember making a lot of noise and getting shushed in the hallway by my Chinese teachers um, yeah I think it was a similar thing I think I like fell off my chair also because the interview process I know some other people who were on the training program as well even someone else in, in my investigative center and everyone's processing to vary a little bit the selection process but it was pretty intense and I just remember the main interview being like the hardest interview I've ever had and completely messing up questions. Like I think they asked me budget deficit was and I didn't know. So I really genuinely, it wasn't just a kind of, you know, trying to talk myself down thing. Like I really genuinely thought that I hadn't got it. So I, I was complete out of shock when I found out I had. Well, yeah, I'm trying to think back to my, my interview now. I, I, do, I remember doing it and like they asked you the math questions and I'd already been yeah. reporting on like Chinese economy and stuff. So like the, the economy questions were fine. I remember it came to the language part and they're like, let's speak some Chinese. And like we start to speak in like one minute and the call drops. <laughs> and then I remember they call back and they're like, uh, I was like, oh, sorry, like bad signal. And in the end, they were like, oh, no, I'm sure you'll, you, you're fine, I'm sure. And I had been studying for a year knowing I would need it to get a job like this. Um, well, for me, it was even worse because they had somehow gotten the idea, which I never, ever said, but they had somehow gotten the idea that I spoke Indonesian. So during the interview, they were sort of like, oh, so you speak Indonesian. I was like, I definitely don't. So, <laughs> but they just seemed to kind of roll with it. They were like, oh, okay, 
and you can learn sort of thing. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so this is when we meet. We meet in two weeks in Singapore for our indoctrination with a couple <laughs> other uh, Reuters people going in. We learn all about Baron von Reuters and how many journalists Reuters has. And, and the pigeons, uh, the delivering the news by pigeon. Yep, yep. And yeah, breaking the news of Lincoln's assassination, all that. But it all seemed very, I mean, to me, very unlike anything I'd done before. Like the fact that they flew us to Singapore and put us up in a hotel and all this. I mean, I'd had a couple jobs at this point, but I still, I mean, they were pretty shoestring operations compared to Reuters. So we do our two-week indoctrination. We get dispatched off. For me, it was supposed to be, you know, you rotate, you rotate, but we really ended up just plugging the gaps that they needed to plug in the bureau, which was mostly, you know, finance and economy. Um, what, what was it like for you? It was pretty similar for me. And I think the sort of two weeks turned into about six or seven weeks in Singapore for me, because weirdly, given that you guys were going to China, which is notoriously hard to get journalist visas for, I was just going to Indonesia, but my visa was process was just a nightmare. So I got sort of stuck in Singapore for a bit and then went across and then, yeah, I was just kind of trying to help out wherever I could. I did quite a bit of company stuff and wrote the palm oil report, commodities report every day. Uh -huh. um, yeah, not the most exciting thing, but good for just teaching you the concept of a market and a market report and true. yeah and, and someone actually said to me at the time which I actually think is true is that market reports can actually make you a better writer because you have to just get to the absolute core of what's going on in simple terms but for experts and I do actually think that's true maybe it's just me trying to get something out of all of my years doing market reports but I, I, I do think it's true sometimes I actually if I'm freaking out about a sort of bigger more nebulous, political, people-driven story. Sometimes I just pretend I'm writing a market report because I can kind of do it, <laughs> you know, in my sleep at this point. This went up for this reason, this went down for that reason. But then when I was in Indonesia, there was a crash of an AirAsia plane, which was going from Surabaya in Indonesia to Singapore, and everyone on board was killed. So that became a really big story. And it sort of happens over the Christmas period. So we're already a bit understaffed. So I was able to get really involved in that. And I spent a lot of time at the Transport Investigation Agency in Jakarta, which also because, of course, I don't really speak Indonesian. I could sort of text a little bit in it, but I can't do like a full interview. But all of the people who work at that agency, they're all sort of like pilots and that sort of thing. So they all speak English. So I just kind of hung out there from quite early on and tried to befriend a lot of these investigators. And then increasingly the story kind of became about them or what their agency was responsible for, like with the finding of the black boxes and trying to figure out what had gone wrong. So I just spent a lot of time trying to sort of be tapped into them and getting information about what was happening so I did a lot of coverage of that and did a little bit of political and general news as well. At the time, Tunisia was about to execute the Australians who had been convicted of smuggling a whole lot of drugs um, into Bali. So that was a very big story. So we did quite a bit around that. And the Indonesian president was claiming that lots of people were dying every week of drug overdoses. And we sort of looked into the data and how that was not quite true. And this was the justification he was using for taking such a hard line and executing people. So, yeah, so it did quite a few different things, but definitely it was just trying to kind of bounce around and sort of begging to be useful, I think. Yeah, that sounds more exciting, though, than my uh, trainee scheme, because, yeah, I was mostly 
writing GDP stories and market reports and things like that and getting sent out to be like, go find color for about how the Chinese economy is slowing and it would still be growing at like 8%. So <laughs> people wouldn't, like there was nothing that juicy that I got out on the street. And I mean, yeah, they, it would be like, oh, there's this wine thing going on. Like, Jake, go write a story about <laughs> wine in China. Writers loves wine stories. I've done a lot in New Zealand as well. <laughs> I did. I wasn't aware of that. That was a trend. Um, it, it was fun, though. It was definitely fun. But uh, the plane crash, was that MH370 or which one was it? No. So MH370 was the missing Malaysian airline. That had happened just before I started. And then I think while I was there, MH17, the one flying from Amsterdam to Malaysia, which crashed in the Ukraine happened. But no, this one was an AirAsia crash and it was between Indonesia and Singapore. So I think because those Malaysia airline ones were sort of so high profile, kind of easy to forget about the AirAsia one now, but it was basically due to the flight sort of stalling and falling out of the air. And everyone died as well? Yeah, everyone on board died. I think it was um, almost 200 people and there were a lot of children and that sort of thing. So it was pretty horrific. But yeah, still that's terrible that there were enough crashes where that many people died that, uh, I mean, that I, I can't recall this specific one, honestly. I do. I yeah. asked about MH370 because I remember right before I started in the trainee program, I went out with some Reuters reporters for a few drinks and them getting a call and a bunch of Chinese people were on the flight. So a guy on TV had finished his drink and like was rushing to where the families were gathered. And I was like, oh, wow, this is on the one side horrible, but on the other side, it seems so, you know, glamorous to me at that point that like, oh, go from the bar to the to the scene. Yeah, it's that weird warped sort of paradox of journalism, which I, you know, I think I've learned more and more over sort of my career is that, yeah, when something absolutely terrible happens, that's, that's kind of when you're on, that's kind of when you switch into gear, that's when you really feel like you're doing your job. So it's this really strange feeling if you do get this adrenaline of just that focus of trying to do your job well and the kind of chance to do your job. But also it's usually dealing with these things where you know it's the worst day of someone else's life. So I always kind of think that's a really strange tension we have in journalism. Yeah, definitely. So after nine months of that, which sounds like you did a lot of different stuff, what happens then? I sort of wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue working in Indonesia. It is an amazing story, but I didn't love living in Jakarta. And I just kind of wasn't quite sure in the bureau sort of what would come up where I would be useful, especially given that I don't speak fluent Indonesian. So I'd sort of made a signal to them of I'm not really sure if I'm going to stay on here, even if there was a job available to me. And I wasn't quite sure what that would mean, but they were really supportive, actually, and kind of looked around at what other things might work. And I got really lucky with timing because at the time, jobs very rarely came out with Reuters in New Zealand, but they had this job coming up. And it sort of worked really well because I had this requirement from this scholarship to live in New Zealand for two years, you know, as your way of bringing back your knowledge from overseas into the country. And that was sort of the idea of that requirement. Mm -hmm. Even though, as I say, I very much had this mindset of wanting to get out of New Zealand longer term, you know, the idea of working for Reuters in New Zealand seems like a really rare opportunity to sort of get that 
out of the way and, you know, I guess reconnect with my home country a little bit, but also kind of stay part of this international network and be writing international news. And now there's a few more organizations that have people in New Zealand, but at the time there weren't many. So that seemed like a really rare opportunity. So when they said that that was an option, I was pretty much like, yep, sign me up. So we worked that out and I was in Sydney for a few months first um, because the New Zealand Bureau with Reuters sort of comes under or works very closely with the Australia Bureau and they didn't need me to be in New Zealand straight away. So it made a bit of sense to spend a little bit of time kind of in that slightly bigger hub in Sydney first. I think I was there in the end for about four months and then came over to Wellington in the capital of New Zealand. Yeah, my understanding is that when we're fully staffed, at least we have three people in New Zealand. Is that right? Just two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, just two. <laughs> and for quite a bit of the time I've been here, because we sort of had some people leave and that sort of thing. For a lot of the time I've been here, I was actually the only person, which kept me pretty stretched. But now we're back up to two and I have a really amazing colleague who's also the New Zealand Bureau Chief who I work with. Oh, cool. Whatever was happening, you get to go cover. It's not like as siloed as in China and elsewhere. Yeah, that's the big benefit of this job. I think it is pretty incredible that reasonably early in your career, you can get to jump on absolutely anything. And sort of during my time, I feel like a lot has kind of happened in New Zealand that has caught the attention of the world. You know, we've had big earthquakes and Jacinda Ardern, our prime minister, her surprise rise to power. And then I think three or four months into the job, she announced she was pregnant. And again, this kind of comes back to what we were discussing before about sometimes the biggest stories are also the worst stories as a human being, but you know, the, the mosque attacks in, in March. So there's really been a lot going on. And I think in a bigger bureau, some are more senior or more experienced at a certain niche would probably do a little bit more coverage. But if there's not really anyone else, they just sort of have to trust you and kind of throw you into the deep end. Very cool. Uh, especially being I've only having worked in some bigger bureaus. I mean, I definitely started to chafe being the automotive correspondent after a while in China and wanted to be doing the bigger stories. Um, yeah. I mean, saying this, I've also written a lot of market reports and said a lot of kind of economic data snaps. So you also have to do all of the that stuff, all of the kind of nuts and bolts chores as well. There's no one else to do it. So there's, yeah, sort of pros and cons. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. I was just going to ask, uh, yeah, what's it like reporting on your own country for uh, Reuters? Because, you know, we take this kind of global perspective I've covered some um, things that I think were scary or involved kind of trauma in other countries. I did some time in Afghanistan at the start of this year. And obviously there was that Air Asia crash and that sort of thing in Indonesia. But nothing quite hits you like when something bad or dramatic happens in your own country. And I was pretty surprised by that. And I think I really saw that when we had these terrorist attacks in March. It was just totally different covering that in my own country than it would have been covering that for me in the US or in Afghanistan or anything like that. You know, you're so much more invested. And even as you've got your journalistic objective hat on, every question you're asking also has more personal implications. Like there's almost an internal dialogue going on with yourself. So yeah, it is quite an interesting experience reporting for a global audience, but on my own country. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just like reporting in Brazil, for example, uh, it makes sense about the level of investment you feel. Because for me, things have been quite 
crazy here, but at some point it becomes like, oh, that's just another crazy thing that's happening. But if you're like really invested in this is your country, then it is doesn't necessarily that effect doesn't wear off the kind of, I don't know, the shock or the, and in the case of Bolsonaro and all that's going on here, I mean, I think I, yeah, I've become a bit inured to it. And yeah, I could see how it's, it's not a good habit as to you can become a foreign, ugly foreign correspondent easily doing that. Anyway, not sure where I'm going with that. So that's kind of the end of the biographical part. Uh, so now let's move on to a story uh, you, you're you proud of that you did. If you can pick a story, tell us a little bit about what, what it was about, how you got the idea, how you reported it, kind of start to finish. I'll sort of try and do one that is reasonably recent so I can kind of remember the nuts and bolts of it a bit better. Because I really find once I've done a story, it's really bad. I just completely move on to the next thing. And I really struggle sometimes to remember the previous stories that I've done. But this one, we tried to turn it around pretty quickly after the March 15th terrorist attacks where a suspected white supremacist shot or killed 51 people in two mosques in Christchurch, which is a city in the South Island of New Zealand. And I'd been down there from the afternoon that the attack happened. And that was really, really intensive coverage. And we'd done a lot of coverage as well, basically speaking to survivors and family members of people who had been killed and we'd written quite a few narrative stories and, and that sort of thing about them. But then we also wanted to kind of see whether we could just step back a little bit and see if we could do a story that was part of some of these wider questions that were going on, which was how could this happen and what had been missed that had allowed this to happen? So we did a story about hate crimes and at first we were trying to look at Were they rising? Were there these warnings that security services should have been paying attention to? And we kind of were derailed from that because what we found really quickly is that we just could not get any reliable data on what had been happening with with hate crimes. And we're in this like slightly absurd situation where after those attacks, which were massively broadcast around the world, there was a really big surge in hate crimes in places like the UK. And you could tell that was happening because there are records. But in New Zealand, there were no records. So we couldn't even tell if in our own country this was happening, where the attack had actually taken place, let alone trying to trace back as to whether there had been a trend happening over time. So the story kind of became our failure in a way, because I can't code or anything like that. But I really do love numbers and spreadsheets and trying to pin things down with trawling through records and that type of thing. So I just did every single thing I could think of. And one of the main things I did was look through court cases. And Thomson Reuters, which is the parent company of Reuters, also owns a whole lot of legal research services. And I used to use these services when I was a, a lawyer or training to be a lawyer. So, mm. you know, I thought, yeah, I can I can do this. Like, I can crack this open. And I really couldn't. I could find a little bit, but not much. So I was like, this is insane that we cannot find this data. And so that then became the story. So what we did is we talked to quite a few people, including the Human Rights Commission here, and one of the main officials there, who had been the Race Relations Commissioner after 9-11 for about 10 years, and he had just continually, desperately been trying to do the exact thing that I was trying to do. He'd been trying to do this for like 10 years, and he just couldn't get the data. He'd done his best, and he had a few bits and pieces, but he couldn't get it. And he had asked the government 
every year. It had gone to the UN several times. And even as recently as when our latest government came in at the end of 2017, the Human Rights Commission had said, we really need this. So governments, and this is governments of both parties, had just ignored this for about kind of 15 years at this point. And then we sort of gathered as many anecdotes as we could and talked to a member of parliament who's from Iran who receives a lot of death threats and that sort of thing. And we talked about how even a week before the Christchurch attacks and a separate incident, there'd been mosques kind of threatened. And so we tried to paint this picture of the fact that this data was missing, that it was such a big vacuum, but also that kind of what that meant in terms of the Human Rights Commission and other sort of officials and members of the Muslim community had anecdotally been saying we're at risk, we're at threat, but without data to back it up, they couldn't really be listened to and the government couldn't really allocate resources accordingly. So that was sort of what the story was looking at. So it's quite, a, in some ways, a dry technical subject, sort of data and a data vacuum. We really tried to build evidence of how this had been systematically ignored and why that was a problem. And then, of course, possibly, it's hard to make an exact link, but how something kind of so horrific had been able to take place uh, and possibly was, was missed because of this problem. Yeah, wow. Seems like a big oversight. What, what was the kind of the headline on it? How uh, exactly did you angle it? So actually, I think I have it up. I can look. The headline was before mosque attacks, New Zealand failed to record hate crimes for years. We played it pretty straight because we also wanted to kind of build up this evidence. We didn't just want to say, oh, this data isn't there. We wanted to make a really good stab at A, every single piece of data, some of it anecdotal that we could find to kind of record it in this story. And then also to sort of show how many times the government had been asked to do this by both local and international agencies and how it had been ignored. So in some ways, we tried to put colour and anecdotes and talk to the people most affected by this, but we also wanted it to be a little bit of a checklist, like a record of all of these things. Still, yeah, a headline like that, that's definitely a story I would click on and read. Doesn't sound that dry and data like <laughs> Cool. Do you have another story you want to talk about? So another one that I did also this year, but at the start of this year in January, I was helping out in our Kabul bureau for a few weeks. And so the big, like overarching constant story in Afghanistan at the moment is the peace talks that are going on between the US and the Taliban to try and strike a peace deal for Afghanistan, which obviously has sort of been at war for 17 or 18 years now. And the peace talks like take up a lot of space journalistically, like every day there's kind of something coming out about them. But what we wanted to look at was basically how women felt about this and what their place was in this. Because, you know, the Taliban, when they were in power, were incredibly restrictive towards women. You know, women were not allowed to be educated. They weren't allowed to really leave the home um, unless they had like a male family member. They couldn't work. And so we were just sort of wondering, although probably in parts of Afghanistan, the situation is still not great for women. In other parts like Kabul, now for 17 years or so, there were very different kinds of lives. So we sort of wondered how women felt and also whether there was a risk that the protection for women of the Taliban do come back was being sidelined. And so I really loved working on that story 
because we just got to speak to so many interesting people, pretty much all, all women, about that issue. And we tried to paint this picture of what was going on. It had been sort of alluded to a little bit, but I think we were sort of the first media, especially international media, to kind of really pull it together and focus on that and try and sort of draw attention to these kind of missing voices. And so we spoke to a lot of women who had memories of living under the Taliban and one of whom had run this secret. She, she said it so casually. We just happened to be talking to her when we were about to interview someone else. And then we sort of asking her about her memories just out of curiosity. And then it turns out she's run this secret school for her daughters and other girls in the neighborhood, which was incredibly risky to do under the Taliban rules so that they could be educated. So we spoke to people like that who had experience about how they felt and whether they were worried, which they were. We spoke to some Western diplomats about whether these considerations were being sidelined as there's a real rush to complete the peace talks. And the main goal of the U.S. negotiators is just to make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a safe haven for terrorists. We had a lot of Western diplomats saying, yeah, we're not sure how much they're going to give on women's rights in the process. And then we also spoke to a woman who's part of this high peace council, which is the Afghanistan side council of that's meant to help the negotiations. And so we spoke to her about the experience of women on this council. This is like run by the Afghan government. And they would just say at meetings, the men won't listen to us and we're talked over and we have to yell at them to get them to hear us and they ignore us. They hold meetings in like weird places at night that as women, we can't really go because it's too risky. So we've tried to show what was really going on in these rooms as well. And then we've turned that into, into a feature. So that was a story I just, I really loved working on just because everyone we spoke to was so interesting and felt as though maybe they weren't the people we were really hearing from, but they're people who we really should be hearing from. Yeah, that's uh, another case of kind of spotting the lack of something and the lack of it is actually the important thing to try to draw a connection of the New Zealand story to. <laughs> did it did it get much of a reaction? I can't imagine uh, the US budged at all on its priorities. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, since then, other media have done features like this as well. And it does seem as though, at least in the rhetoric, there's a little bit more talk about women. It's sort of a strange coincidence that NATO, the head of NATO was in New Zealand last week and held a press conference with our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. So it was me, you know, sitting back in Wellington, which is obviously very different from Kabul. But Jacinda Ardern started talking about how New Zealand's contribution to this was going to be trying to make sure that women had more of a role and the New Zealand Defence Force was sending over some kind of women to specifically work on this and stuff. And look, I'm not, I don't think this was because of our story, but I do think that sometimes if media, not just Reuters, but you know, a whole lot of media start covering this issue in a way that takes people inside it. You know, I think that can start to maybe shift the dial a little bit. I don't know how much practical difference these kinds of things make, or, you know, I'm sure the kind of negotiating bottom lines are probably the same as ever. But I think there's been a little bit of a shift in the rhetoric of some people involved since international media started raising this more. Yeah. I mean, of course, yeah, it's impossible to know for for sure how much influence it has, but it's at least getting more attention than it was. One, one thing I'm wondering if I should ask you about the whole Christchurch terrorist attack. I mean, I just feel like 
people listening might be curious about how you reported that. I assume you were in New Zealand at the time when it happened. What happens when something like that happens? How do you, you know, fly into action? Yeah, sure. I mean, those sorts of situations and, you know, as I say, it's, it can sound very kind of clinical to talk about, but this is sort of what you have to do to do your job is those sorts of situations like really call on you to get back to basics and just completely focus on the core things you need to get the information out. With something like that, it was very, very confusing, particularly the first few hours. We just didn't really know what was happening. And even when we sort of did start to know what was happening, it just seemed so surreal that it was hard to get your head around and you weren't quite sure. It's quite difficult to report anything in that situation because you really need to, like you need to get the information out there, but you just also need to be really careful that you're not putting out something incorrect. It was like a Friday. It was really quiet. And me and my colleague, um, Praveen, was sort of sitting there. I don't think we were really doing that much, sort of getting ready for the weekend. And then we just saw something about a police incident and guns in Christchurch. And just for context, like this kind of stuff actually happens quite a lot. There's often some sort Sometimes it'll be a domestic violence incident or a gang member somewhere with a gun and the police kind of put out a vague statement and it usually turns out to be nothing. So, you know, this would happen every few weeks or so, but it's easy to say this now, but something felt different. We just kind of felt maybe there's something more to this. So then we started trying to make calls, you know, to police and that sort of thing. And so paying real attention to local media, because obviously we're only two people, but the you know local media outlets have reporters everywhere and obviously including in Christchurch. So as soon as we realized that it was near a mosque, I think we both had a feeling um, that it could be a bigger attack that was motivated because the, the victims were targeted based on their religion. So we just started putting alerts out on our newswire. So it's kind of one line that goes out all in capitals just to start getting news out there. And then started writing, you know, you start just with a few lines and then you sort of keep adding to it bit by bit and update it as it goes along. So we were sort of doing that. Our Australia Bureau was also helping us with that. And we were also trying to call anyone we could think of who might know what was going on. And then quickly we figured out that it was going to be a very big story. So I booked a to Christchurch and kind of ran home and got stuff. And then I think I got on one of the last planes out from Wellington because they shut down flights between Wellington and Christchurch. So I arrived at, I think, about nine o'clock at night. And by complete coincidence, I'd been in Christchurch the previous day reporting sort of a feature story. And it was really, really surreal arriving in the airport because it was like arriving in a different city. I mean, it was sort of like arriving somewhere like Kabul. There were guys everywhere, police officers with, you know, really big rifles. And in New Zealand, our police aren't usually even armed. They don't even have handguns. So there were helicopters just flying back and forth overhead constantly. Everything was just really heightened and tense. So then from there, it was just about probably like five or six days of really intense coverage. And since colleagues from Singapore, from Australia joined as well, so we were quite a big team. And for me, a lot of it was speaking to people who had been in the mosque or people who had family members who had been killed. So we spent a lot of time at a makeshift. It was this community center that had been 
turned into a kind of centre for victims. Talking to anyone going in and out who felt able to talk to us, actually it was more about getting their phone numbers and then calling them back and then seeing whether any of them were able to meet or whether they could connect us to other people. And so from that, we were able to build bigger pictures of what had gone on inside the mosque and also sort of do stories on the toll that was taking on people. Yeah, so that was that first week really afterwards. How long were you down there for? I was down there for about a week and then I came back. There were still some colleagues from Australia who were still there and then I went back down the following week for about another week and and I've also been back a few times since. I'm actually going back on Wednesday for a court hearing that's happening uh, in relation to the attacks. How long did the intensive breaking news bit of it last? A couple weeks or... Yeah, I would say the really intense stuff was the first week. It was still really big, probably two weeks after. But that first week was probably, that was the sort of working around the clock, have no sleep kind of situation. Wow. Well, yeah, certainly I've never been on a story like that. I can only imagine what it's like. Okay. Um, and so next, since you've actually listened to these before, uh, is the the lightning round. I think you feel good. You feel ready for it. Yeah. No, I think I'm ready. What is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and you grab your phone or your computer? Oh, yeah, definitely Twitter. That's where I get like the kind of first overview of what's going on, especially because in New Zealand, just with the time difference, everything that's happening in the Northern Hemisphere has already happened. So Twitter just gives me the oversight of what's what's going on in the news. Cool. What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? For work, I have to spend a lot of time kind of glued into the New Zealand media because, as I say, they are so much better resourced and reporting on so much more than we are. So for that, probably Radio New Zealand, kind of like BBC Radio or RFI in France. It's independent, but it's state-funded, and they cover everything. And they have a website. So probably on that all day, And then internationally, again, it's usually coming from different places through Twitter, but probably New York Times would be the main one. I might go to their homepage. Sure. What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch purely for fun that's not related to work? There's a podcast I really like listening to called The Hilo, which is these two British journalists, and they just sort of talk about things that have been in the media or literature or films. And that's why they call it The Hilo and the idea that it's kind of highbrow stuff and lowbrow stuff. So some of it's entertaining things or pop culture references, and some of it is actually like the really serious news that I'm reading for work at. Anyway, so I, I kind of like that blend. So that's probably something I, I listen to quite a bit. And then just trying to make sure I expand my horizons a little bit, especially in New Zealand. I'm Pakia, which is kind of like a white person in New Zealand, but our society is very multicultural and about 15% of our population is our indigenous people, Māori. So I've been trying to read more widely from Māori publications. There's a really good weekly online magazine called E Tangata, which has these really amazing essays told about the news and what's going on and personal essays written by Māori. So, yeah, I've been trying to read more more of that. What is the best journalistic article, piece, or whatever that you have consumed recently? There are so many, but uh, I think it was about a month ago now. It's really stayed with me. I read this long-form article in the Texas Monthly, which I think is run by Texas Tribune. It was also in Texas Tribune as well. And it's 
this story which follows a girl called Jaylin who was a student at Santa Fe High School where there was a shooting earlier this year and her best friend who was also living with her because this friend was an exchange student from Pakistan I think her name was Sabika she was killed in the shooting and so it kind of follows this girl Jaylin and you know she's just completely devastated by grief and kind of trying to pick up her life in the aftermath of this and then also in doing so it gives you this life story of the other girl Sabika and it's so beautiful it really takes you inside this world I mean in some ways it's very upsetting and really really sad and I guess probably reporting on some of the family members of people who were killed in the Christchurch attacks I think maybe I'm just more interested in this type of journalism and how you do it well now so maybe that's why it captured me but it just really takes you into these girls lives and it's really beautiful it's really awful about this really serious subject but their friendship was so intense and I think they were sort of 14 or 15 or so maybe a little older and I think it also kind of takes you into how intense friendships, particularly between girls, it's probably, I don't know if it's the same with guys, but can be at that age and how you can just kind of fall in love with this friend and they're your whole world and the thought of losing them is just horrific. So yeah, I thought that was one of the most beautifully written things I've read in a long time and it, it really stayed with me. Sounds great. I'll have to check it out. And it's always good to shout out magazines like Texas Monthly and I, I know like California has something along those lines and of course like New York Magazine and some of those kind of state magazines are really are doing some of the best long-form work outside of, you know, it's become less and less, I would say, outside of like New York, D.C. But there are a ton of stories out there that deserve that kind of treatment. Okay. Is there any particular subject matter you read and do specifically that isn't related to your job? So I guess the Maori thing could fall along those lines, but anything else? Sometimes in like very, in the most dumbed down terms, I try to read a bit about physics and astrophysics and those kinds of things. I didn't really do much science at high school. So I need like the really explainery kind of books. And my nephew who is 11 is like totally science and maths mad like the total opposite of me in terms of the way his brain works but brian cox the like british physicist he's kind of like a celebrity physicist if that's a thing he did this like tour of this big presentation that also has all these like fancy kind of visual effects that take you through space and stuff and he's doing this world tour and he like did a show in wellington a few weeks ago so i took my nephew to that and that was really fun so yeah i guess astrophysics (laughs) Cool. No, that's, uh, that's admirable. <laughs> and then uh, the next questions are yes or no questions. Take them as you will. Uh, and feel free to expand or not. The first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? I think all my answers might be like, yes, but with explanation. I do skim The Intercept sometimes, but I haven't followed his work super closely. But I feel as though he comes at journalism from a very different place than my legal training, Columbia, Reuters experience or, you know, Newswire experience has, which is you're drilled into this idea or this higher ideal of objectivity. Whereas I feel like often Glenn Greenwell comes with quite a strong perspective. And, you know, I think there is some risk in terms of if journalists, you know, become too much like activists. Like I think there's a good reason 
that are activists and they're journalists and they're not the same thing. But saying that, there's there's room at the table for a lot of different types of journalists. And, you know, I think more and more within journalism, there's a discussion of, well, maybe we all have our own biases and takes on things or every sort of organization does. So maybe being explicit about that, you know, maybe that's an interesting way of doing things moving forward. So yeah, I think in terms of part of a broader journalistic ecosystem, I think, you know, there's a space for that. Vice media, yes or no? I think yes. For some reason, I don't really know why, but I just have never read or viewed that much vice media. I'm not sure why. It's sort of just has never made it onto my Twitter list, I guess. But they did for a while have a pretty concrete operation here in New Zealand. They did some really good stuff, just speaking to communities and doing stories, like particularly on like indigenous people in the Pacific Islands and sort of gender diverse and transgender people that just don't get covered very much. And they put a lot of resources into that. So, you know, I think as I say, my knowledge of the work they do is not that big, but from what I know of what they did here, unfortunately, they've now mostly got rid of their New Zealand operation. But for the short time they were here, I think they kind of pushed the dial and did good stuff. So yeah, I think I have to say yes. And then uh, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? It's so hard because I feel like there's so many amazing journalists, but a lot of them have really tough lives or tough careers. So you know, I feel like throughout history, I mean, even just thinking of women journalists, people like from Ida B. Wells to like Martha Gellhorn and Marie Colvin, you know, they're people you really admire, but I'm not sure if I could wholeheartedly say I want their exact trajectory in life. And it's such different circumstances that they were working in, but maybe still really different circumstances, but maybe someone who I would be more directly envious of their career is Rukmini Kalamaki, the now New York Times reporter who used to work for AP who covers ISIS. I just think her job is is so interesting and she gets to cover it from so many different angles and truly take this global approach. I can't imagine how many datelines she must have, I think, you know, from places in Syria to like Berlin and that sort of thing to all look at this kind of global phenomenon of ISIS and really try and take people inside it and how it works. Yeah. And I just think she's, she's an incredible reporter. Is, is she the one behind the ISIS files? The, uh, yeah. The, the, the podcast that was sort of run by the daily, but was like a series. Yeah. 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 That's that's her. Yeah. Okay. cool. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Learn languages. (laughs) (laughs) It's just and probably just talking myself out of it. But the older you get, I feel like the harder it is. Like, I think your your brain can sort of still handle it. But just in terms of finding the time, because I, I really think to learn languages properly, you have to be as immersed in them as possible. So I kind of have really bad French. But even that, I'm not sure at this point I could really report in. So I think it just opens up so many doors um, to, have, to have other languages. Definitely, yeah. I mean... I can say that. I I would not claim to be somebody who's particularly good at languages or anything like that, but having kind of accidentally learned two of them, (laughs) I would recommend it. Although, yeah, realize it's just language in a way is almost rote learning. It is just like getting hit with it over and over and over and over and over again. And like, it's not rocket science. It's just brute grunt work almost, (laughs) Um, at least for me. I mean, some people are gifted with it. Uh, And next, what is your favorite film, book, TV or other media property about journalists and why? 
since I've become a journalist, I'm always a fan of, I feel it's like a genre or like a trilogy of Spotlight, The Post, and then going back to All the President's Men, this very take you into a newsroom, working on a big story and all of the dilemmas that come with that in a very traditional lauded American newsroom. So, I mean, I do love those movies. But to be honest, I think that probably the one that really stayed with me the most, which I watched ages ago, is Veronica Guerin. It's like a 2003 film but I watched it later than that. I watched it when I was doing my undergrad, so before I was a journalist. And it's about the Irish journalist, Veronica Guerin, who's played by Kate Blanchett. And so she was a real woman who reported on drugs in Ireland in the 90s and ended up being assassinated by these drug lords. And it really, really stayed with me. I mean, I think this is probably partly Veronica Guerin, the woman, and then Kate Blanchett's betrayal of her. I just, the, the kind of passion and sense of mission and all of those things that came out of that film really inspired me. But I haven't actually watched it again since becoming a journalist. So I feel like maybe I'm going to look back and be like, this was totally unrealistic. That was totally unethical. I'm not sure. But yeah, that was probably the film that had the most influence on me becoming a journalist. Cool. That's one I'd not heard of. I'll have to check it out. And then uh, the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? When I was a teenager, I really wanted to be like an actor or maybe something else like a film editor or script writer or something like that. I mean, the core of it probably comes from the same impulses, right, of trying to understand the world and people and put that into some sort of narrative that really engages with people. So yeah, probably something like that, although has just as much of a lack of job security <laughs> as journalism, but that's probably <laughs> what I would have, that's probably what I would have tried. <laughs> Sure, sure. Good answer. Okay. Well, how do you how do you feel about everything? You feel good about the interview? Yeah, no, it was really great. Thank you. It was kind of fun to to think about these things. Yeah, thanks thanks so much for coming on the podcast and taking all the time to talk to me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Charlotte Greenfield of Reuters in New Zealand. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps us to get more attention in Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. Our show's music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information about that on the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on on Sunday, October 20th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.